Uh, we finish up with the book of 1 Timothy, so we are in chapter 6. You turn in your Bibles. Thank you to all the men who have been teaching over the last weeks. I've mentioned this a few times, but I, I, I think the God's goodness to us should be commended over and over again. And I think a particular goodness of God to this church is the number of men and women who are serious and gifted teachers. Those who love the Word of God, who are very earnest to handle the Word of God well, and who have some giftedness in teaching. And we, we've seen that over the last few years with numbers of men that we've been using on Wednesdays, so we're grateful for that. Uh, that's a, a form of God's care for us. And uh, I know I'm very grateful for it. Last week, in the first 10 verses of 1 Timothy 6, uh, we looked at practices that are inconsistent with following Christ in godliness. And now, beginning of verse 11, going through the, the rest of the chapter, uh, if we could kind of put one overall theme on it is, is we're being told how to follow God in godliness. And as we read through it, we're going to see in these verses, uh, they describe four categories of action for us to, what does it mean to live in a godly way? Rather than the, those who are false teachers and those who have behaviors and attitudes who are unbecoming for the people of God. We want to be godly people. Uh, how do we separate ourselves from that which is displeasing to God, which we're where those influences are all around us? How are we making sure that we are moving forward in what is godly? So I, I've taken this and brought it into four categories of action that we're given. So We'll read the passage, pray, and then dig in. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. And that would be what we saw in the previous verses, the different forms of ungodly behavior. Pursue, instead, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who is his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him 
be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Our Heavenly Father, we, we come because we love your word, we honor your word, we know this, this is the framework of what life is meant to be. We know it is entirely true and good. There's much we understand and have embraced, and we've been shaped by it, but we recognize there are things that we lose sight of. There are, there are things we don't understand clearly, connections that we forget or don't make. So, uh, Lord, you knowing our hearts are need, we ask that you would instruct each of us, that you would encourage each of us, that we would leave seeing more clearly what it means to be people who please you. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. The first of these categories given of, of action uh, to live a godly life is verse 11 to both flee and pursue. Flee these things, ungodliness, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. And uh, Paul uses lists a lot, and we know that uh, lists are not exclusive, meaning those are the only categories that he's concerned with. He's only concerned with righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness. Uh, for Paul, the lists just mean, is giving us examples. He means all forms of honoring God and living rightly. So there are Humility, love could be in here too. Any quality that the Bible teaches, he, he is saying we are to flee what doesn't honor God and we are to pursue what does. This is similar to what Paul says in some of his other epistles, the language he'll use a number of times where to put off and to put on. Paul makes these contrasts, which it's, it's important to see in the put off, put on to flee and pursue that the Christian life is not one of casual neutrality. Kind of floating along, kind of taking things as they come. Uh, we're not to take the matter of our conduct lightly. There is the necessity of being aware of what doesn't honor God and what does. We, we have to see those things clearly, know what it is, and then to, to take action based upon it. We're to be looking, aware of what's going on around us, aware of what's going on in our own heart. 
what kinds of attitudes, what kinds of words, what behavior, and what's around us that maybe is, is moving us one way or the other. And concerning truth and falsehood. We need to know the difference and be aware where each of those is in our life or around us. We need to be thinking of what is godly and ungodly and not kind of trying to shave those as closely as we can. What's the closest we can get to it or you know, what's the minimum amount that we have to do? Uh, that doesn't fit the idea of fleeing and pursuing. What is beneficial and wasteful? What is truly honoring of God? And, and what is really not paying that much attention to him? Think about the implications of the language that Paul uses. Flee. There are dangers, spiritual dangers, that warrant flight of turning and getting away, of changing how we're thinking, of changing what's coming out of our mouth, and of going after as aggressively as possible what would honor God, not just, well, oh, this honors God, and maybe there's more, but this honors God. That's not the intention here. It's the aggressive action in both directions. When we stay near dangers, uh, the Bible would identify it as foolish. In the book of Proverbs, the, the predominant theme of the entire book is, is wisdom and foolishness. And it, it speaks of the fool throughout the book of Proverbs. And the, the fool is the person who doesn't pay attention to the truth of God. And that, in Proverbs, is synonymous with the title of the fool. The person pays no attention to God. And in Proverbs 14, 16, he says, the wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is careless. Just not paying that much attention, not thinking about the lines and the categories. So we're to to flee what is spiritually dangerous, which sometimes can be subtle. It doesn't have to be something that is dramatic. If it's not honoring to God, it's something to flee. But we're not just to run aimlessly. I have to get away from this and just, you know, the, the saying out of the frying pan into the fire. So we don't just run from, from evil and run into just whatever emotional response we happen to have or just to run to whatever comfort we want to grab onto or whatever advice that is given to us. We're, we're, we're fleeing by Pursuing that which is thoughtfully wise, meaning godly. To pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, is to fill our life 
and our heart with the presence of God, with the thoughts of God, with the heart of God. It's, it's filling up so that the rest is pushed out. We no longer have a heart from it. That's, I pray often, Lord, I, I ask that the Holy Spirit would fill me because if he's not filling me, what else is there? More of my flesh, which just is not going to be helpful. It, we want to be filled with the Spirit and what he is saying, what he's directing to us. So we're seeing action is to be taken. We're to cultivate consistency in godly practices. We can't define pursuing these godly qualities without identifying, well, there are certain practices that help that happen. There, there are areas of consistent behavior and activity that will do that, whether it's our devotional life, our church life, uh, how we're examining our heart, how we're receiving instruction. There's, there are graces that God provides for us that we, we need to take advantage of. That, as pastors, when we are counseling with someone or someone comes to us with a struggle, an area of sin, we're beginning with, are, are you in church regularly? I had someone who called, needed help. And, you know, I've seen them at church at different times, not seen them here regularly. So, well, that's, that's part of it. Whatever answer I have, it includes regularly being a part of the people of God. Are you in a small group that can be praying for you? There are practices that are important and essential if we're to pursue godliness because it, it won't just drop out of the sky and hit us on the head. There it is. So, Flee and pursue is this first category of action if we are to live a godly life. The second category in verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. And all of these categories are interwoven with each other. It's not as though they're completely separate ideas. They're all connected. So part of fleeing and pursuing is the fight of faith. And it it calls it the the good fight, meaning there are fights that are not good. There's certain fighting in life that is not really helping us. It's not the fight of faith. Fighting with people, arguing constantly your view, what is wrong with them, that's not fighting the good fight. Fighting for success. Nothing wrong with working hard and building responsibility, but fighting, grasping for success, it's not the good fight. Or fighting with the world's means. So we're after this godly goal, but we're going to go about it the same way the world does, which gets us back to arguing and fighting and accusing. And uh, There is fighting that we can spiritualize and say it's a part of I'm wanting to follow God, but that's not the good fight because 
it, it, it's, not, it's not based upon faith in God and what faith speaks to us of. The good fight is that of faith. We are fighting against anything that keeps us from being faithful to God. That's where we start. It's not, who can I fight with today? How about the sin in our soul? That's what we're fighting. What would keep me from faithfulness? And we fight against sinful actions, which includes the sins of omission. Because I think the sins of omission are probably the biggest pile of sins in our life. The sins of what we do is a big enough mountain. The sins of omission is a mountain range. Siri is just getting annoying. I think she has something to say about everything I say. I didn't ask you a question. The sins of omission are whenever we're not being great, crim, great commandment people. We are, what's the, the greatest commandment? To love the Lord with all your God, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. To love your neighbor as yourself. And so anytime we're not doing that, that's the sin of omission. So there's plenty to work on in our own life without looking to other people. Our great battle is not the sin of other people. There is battle there. There is concern. But our great battle is in our own soul. That is, for each of us, our greatest battle. Now, the enemy is not people. The enemy is Satan. He is our true enemy. His name, the title Satan, means adversary and accuser. That's why he's called Satan. He is our adversary. He's one that accuses our soul. And his chief weapon is deception. There is, John 8, there is no truth in him. Whenever he When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. He is a liar and the father of lies. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, it says he sets snares. A snare is a trap you step into without being aware of it. It says he takes men captive. So he uses deception to snare us and to to bind us into behaviors and attitudes which are not pleasing to God. He's not carting us off somewhere. He's he's binding us to behavior and thinking. So any thought that minimizes sin is a deception. Automatically a deception. Any thought that minimizes sin this pursuit of God or fleeing. There's deception in it. Any thought or excuse or reason why we shouldn't be wholeheartedly living for God 
is deception. Satan cannot make us sin. He leads us to live by a wrong perspective. He leads us to to start with ourselves. He leads us to have wrong attitudes about other people. He wants us to have wrong, wrong perspectives always at God's expense. So where does faith come into all of this? What is, so we're fighting with faith. Well, Satan, his chief weapon is deception. How do you fight deception? What do you use to fight deception? You use truth. Fighting the good fight of faith is to respond to deception with truth, to identify it in Scripture, to believe it is wholly true, perfectly good and worthy, and I will so act upon it. The difference between faith and belief, belief is kind of halfway there. Belief is acknowledging something is true. Faith is acting upon it. We act upon the truth. We don't just believe it, we live by it. There's all sorts of things we say we believe that we don't act upon. All sorts of things that someone's asked, you do believe this, this? We say, of course I believe that. But then we live in ways which don't show that we actually believe it. Satan wants us to start with ourselves rather than always starting with God. Faith does always start with God. God is the main character. He is the one where we live for. He is the ruler of the world. We must start with God. Where else is there to start with if not God? It's his world. He alone is the holder of truth. It is his. We are his. So faith has a a very different starting place. Satan wants us just to look at one side of sin. Look what they're doing and look the advantage they get. You know, I know that business guy cuts corners and look how much he's making. Or this person, you know, they, they got divorced and they got remarried and it's all working out for them. Look how happy they are. Satan wants us to look at sin, at disobedience, and just see one part of it. Oh, look at this benefit. It can't be that bad. And so we justify things that we know are not faithfulness to God. Satan wants us to take offense, to argue our position, to pursue idols, to exalt our wants, to exalt our opinions. Satan wants us to focus on this moment. He wants us to focus on our emotions. He wants us to focus on our circumstances, on what people do, what they do against us. 
that we take those things and they become huge in our mind and we're starting with those things. We're starting with what we feel or what we want or what they did or what I desire and telling ourselves, but I'm protecting myself and I'm making a good life. But we haven't started with God and the truths of his word. We're not operating out of faith. I believe what the word of God says that it's best, so I will act upon it. And so fighting with faith is to respond to all of these deceptions and struggles. We respond to it with the word of God, what it says, and trusting it. Uh, What did Jesus do in the wilderness when Satan came to tempt him? He responded with Scripture always. But the Scripture says. Now, think of that compared with in the Garden of Eden. And how did Adam and Eve respond? Mm, How that looked and what they wanted. They didn't respond with faith. Well, we know God says this, so it must be true. We can believe it, so We shouldn't pay attention to the deceiver. They didn't respond with faith. Jesus always did. Biblical faith sees God is the main character. He is sovereign. He is good. He is faithful. Faith believes that even if we're not always able to see it in what are discernible ways. But we know him enough to trust him, to put our faith in him, regardless of what our eyes see or our ears hear. Biblical faith lives according to what God then has said. What has God said about himself, about his character, about his faithfulness? What has God said about the world? And where it ends, and what it can give you, what it can't give you, of its deception, of the shallowness of it. What has God said about us, and who we are, and what we're meant for, and our eternity? What what has God said about the future, and about the gospel, about judgment and blessing? The Bible's a fairly big book. There's a lot in there. There's a lot of truth in there. All the truth you will ever need is in there. All sorts of pages to go to. This is what God says. I believe that. I'm going to act believing that's true. That is the good fight of faith. It is building our life upon what matters most, the glory of God. Seeking him, his work, his kingdom. So the fight of faith is the practice, the habit, the lifestyle of identifying what the Bible says and how that should inform our thoughts and so shape the way we live.
First category, flee, pursue. The second category, fight the good fight of faith. The third category, also in verse 12, take hold of the life Christ has given us. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called, about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This is also really part of fighting with faith, taking hold of the eternal life to which you're called, meaning take hold of the gospel and give it the value that it deserves. Taking gospel truths and valuing them as more precious than any temptation, than any burden, than any loss, One example would be that uh, when we are misused, which we are misused, and it is unfair, and sometimes it actually does have consequences that are very hurtful. I was in a phone conversation today uh, concerning a, a pastor who it would appear has been accused by an unstable person who out of the blue went to his place of employment and he is fired. And the employer, all they had was there is an accusation about a category without a single detail, not one detail, which the employer admitted. I have no details. The person just said it's true. You either quit or you're fired by Friday. And it would appear now through a counselor involved that indeed it was a nothing thing that someone has manufactured in their own mind because what took place took place in a room filled with dozens of people. They were all there to see what didn't happen. And someone lost a job. I think we would all be a little bothered by that. You're bothered. You don't know who it is. It's not your job. And that happens day after day to person after person. And that's just one category of all sorts of things that happen. So when that happens to us, that is so unfair and I'm losing this. What do we believe about the gospel? What do we believe about justice and the care of God and the sovereignty of God to use all things? And that the character of our witness in times like that is actually even more important to whether or not we have a job or have that job. And that can be a hard step to take, but yet it is fully true. The impact of the gospel to others, there is nothing greater than that. There, there's nothing to hold up that is of more power and worth to everyone who sees it. We 
we take hold of the eternal life we've been called by taking what this hurts, this is unfair, I'm struggling with this, this is pulling me, whatever it is, we stop it and, and we speak to ourselves, what is the salvation, the eternal life I've been given to, that I'm called to live out? What does it say about who I am and what I have? What do we know about eternity and what we are given? And what loss of things here compares to what, what God has given us? And what does he say about specifically how he will show himself to be faithful. That it is a theological impossibility for us to ever go through anything and then find out, okay, God somewhat fulfilled it, but it doesn't really, it doesn't match. That will never happen. Indeed, for all eternity, no matter how hard anything is here, we will be proclaiming forever how good God was. And so we're back to faith, fighting with faith. I believe God that much. The one who became man and died for my sin and raised himself from the dead. I believe him. I believe what he says, what he has done. I value that above all. It is what we speak of preaching the gospel to ourselves. Taking all these truths of the gospel and just pouring the truths in our soul, speaking of them, lifting them up, seeing how wondrous they are. So we are influenced by those realities more than any other. We are to hold, take hold of the accomplishments of the gospel. Take hold of what has Jesus done? Because at times we can be so foolish and blinded even to just a little bit, you know, God's not, yeah, God's not treating me well. God's not really being fair to me. Look, they have, God, could, should you be doing more? How much of your sin has been removed? Who, who calls you his child and says, Call me Father, who says, come to my presence with any burden. Who is it that lives in us? One gospel truth outweighs everything else. And we have this abundance of gospel truths. It's to take hold of what Christ has done and the blessings of the gospel. What Ephesians 1, all of the descriptions there of the many things we have in Christ. When we take 
hold of eternal life. We will value it. We will pursue it. We will flee what is trying to distract us. We will believe it and so act upon it. Think of Jesus' uh, little parable of the pearl of great price in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. Compared to the kingdom of heaven, everything else just exchange everything for this. That's what Paul's talking about. Take hold of the eternal life you've been called to and exchange all everything, everything that would get in the way, exchange it to hold to that to believe and cherish that. We truly are part of a kingdom that is wondrous beyond comprehension. We're eternal citizens, family members of it. And yet that's not the kingdom we often fight for. We can fight for our kingdom, the kingdom of our rights, our wants, the kingdom of our accomplishments. We have to be very careful in our culture right now, uh, fighting for our, the kingdom of our nation. Nothing wrong with being thankful for our country and cherishing it and wanting values to be pursued and praying for and voting for officials that uh, are identifying with the truths of Scripture, but America doesn't stand forever. America is not the kingdom of God. We're not fighting for America. We're fighting for righteousness in us and through us. And At times, the church is kind of mixing this with a Christian nationalism that we don't find anywhere in Scripture, anywhere in Scripture, it's not diminishing the thankfulness we have. It's remembering the kingdom we're fighting for, the kingdom we're grabbing a hold of. There's a dual focus that is fundamental to this and really all of it, but kingdom-minded, eternally-minded. Our kingdom is that of Christ. What is he doing? What lasts? What doesn't last? What's all going to disappear? So kingdom-minded, what is the kingdom we're in fighting for, living for, and eternally minded, what will last and what won't. And just those two mindsets change how a lot of things affect us, whether it's the evening news or what our neighbor does or even our own weaknesses and struggles, our health. All kinds of things are affected greatly if we are 
kingdom of Christ-minded, eternally-minded. Meaning, we're seeing all of this that's going on and swirling. We're seeing it with a, a proper measuring perspective. What is the most important kingdom? The only one that lasts. What is it that we focus on? What does last, not what disappears? And so the, the section of verses 17 to 19 uh, is really uh, rooted in this taking hold of eternal life. And it gives a practical area of that when it deals with those who are rich in the present age. When we're eternally minded, we're not prone to the arrogance of the rich, of getting caught up into trying to be wealthy, which is a root of all sorts of evils, as we've seen. Now, in these verses, think about, notice all of the words and concepts that Paul uses here that we use and think of in terms of wealth in the world that we kind of misappropriate. Appropriate. It, God who richly provides. Now, the world, they don't think God richly provides. God takes. What, you know what richly provides? Money. That's what richly provides. Money and more of it. That's what will provide. What do I want? How to get what I want? Money. Paul said, no. God richly, richly, generously, wonderfully provides everything to enjoy. We think of enjoyment in getting stuff that we think looks nice. Uh, he said, enjoyment is God himself. Him. Relationship with God. That's the enjoyment that we should seek. Uh, he speaks of storing up treasure. Well, storing up treasure is having more and more. He's saying, no, actually it's giving it away. Storing up treasure is what God will do. How God is using our works and generosity. It's a very different way of thinking about life. The foundation for the future, or the foundation is that I have enough money, I don't have to worry about anything. How do you get rid of what he says in verse 17? Uncertainty. Well, I'm not uncertain if I know I've got so much money that I never have to worry about paying a bill. Now I don't have uncertainty. No. Uncertainty is having the things of the world because none of it lasts. How you get rid of uncertainty is to trust in the God who is certain and what he has promised. So he's pointing to the fact that even though we, we have money, we have to use it, we want to use it wisely and we can appreciate it, but he wants us to think about these things in a different way, in a way that is taking hold of eternal life, which then guides us to the perspective and use of things, the desire for it, 
the grasping, the, the thinking, if I have that, then, then life will be smooth, then I won't have to worry, then I'll have the joy I want. And none of that is true. The last category, verse 14 to 16, is we look to the exalted Christ. Flee and pursue. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life. Look to the exalted Christ. Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the only sovereign, King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. To him be honor and eternal dominion. And we don't have time to explore the background of each of these statements, uh, but this is clear. We're meant to be overwhelmed by the picture. We're meant to be overwhelmed by it because he is overwhelmingly Wonderful, overwhelmingly greater than, as we see in Hebrews week after week. Christ dwells in unapproachable light. He is beyond imagination. He's beyond imitation. And he is singular in all that he is. Only sovereign. Alone, immortality. King of kings, all of them. Lord of lords, all of them. Christ is singular in his person, in his majesty, in his rule, in his foreverness, in his saving power, in his goodness, in how he will prove himself to us. I've become increasingly convinced that our greatest practical need in terms of day-to-day living, what do we need most? To see Christ clearly. Every day. What do we need? What do I need today? See Christ clearly. If we see him we will pursue him. If we see him, we will flee foolishness. If we see him, our faith is strong. If we see him, we will cling to his kingdom. When we see him, our hearts change. The Bible speaks of When we see him, we will be like him. It speaks of seeing and glory. It's a theme of seeing him and the effect that it has because he truly, truly is the wondrous God who came to us. He is the greatest person, the most wonderful person He is the sum of all perfections. And he is love and grace and mercy poured out beyond measure. He is worthy. 
And when we're stuck in sin, how do we get out of it? Struggling with a prevailing sin, how do we live differently? When we're depressed, afraid, combative, selfish, compromising, cold-hearted. All of those things come when we have lost sight of Christ. And to see him is, is the greatest way to move into being faithful. Time to think of him. It's the true priority each day. When we read the Bible, when we pray, what is the real purpose of it? More than to see Jesus, to read the Bible, to be reminded Jesus, his kingdom, he's Lord. Oh, right, I'm following him today. We're praying to not convince him of all the good ideas we have that we need, it's to know him and love him. So we're shaped. When we come to worship, what is it that we need to see him and to be so overwhelmed by him that we're lifted to follow him in every way? It's how we stay on track. It's how we respond to difficulty. It's how life becomes content. And it's what people need from us. What does your spouse need from you more than anything? That your eyes and your heart are filled with Christ. What do your children need from you more than anything? That your heart is filled with Christ. What do your enemies need from you? What do your friends need from you, the, the people in your church family? What they need most from you is your eyes and your heart are filled with Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us with these wise and good actions you've given us, the orientation of our life, how do we handle just getting up, going through the day? How do we handle the, the swirling realities around us of difficulty, of confusion? How do we handle the fact that we're weak? And here you give us this perfect wisdom and you're in it. We know we, we struggle with consistency in it, but you don't destroy struggle with consistency. So we come asking again that you would help us to be freshly faithful, increasingly faithful, a step of faithfulness, that our lives will be filled with Christ, filled with your fruitfulness and a blessing to others as we honor you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.